The Bob Murphy Show, episode 94. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show on this one, I am going to give a case for Christian pacifism. Now, the reason I chose that perhaps surprising word order, for example, you might have thought I would say a Christian case for pacifism. But no, the reason I'm doing it this way is because I'm not going to sit here in this episode and quote Bible verses at the Christians out there and say, see, if you're a Christian, you ought to be a pacifist. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm going to give an actually uh, pragmatic, largely, case for pacifism, but the type of pacifism it is, is going to be motivated out of the Christian perspective. All right. So in short, if you're a Christian, then everybody's your brother and sister. And just like in our household, it would be really just awful if you had to go to your mom and dad and say, uh, some things got out of hand and, um, you know, I ended up killing my brother. Even if it was in self-defense, still, you know, your parents would just be heartbroken and you would be second-guessing yourself. Like, was there any way I could have diffused that situation? Should I maybe have done something years ago to help mend our relation? You know, in other words, if it got to the point where you literally had to kill your brother in self-defense, something probably went off the rails long ago that you contributed to, right? So saying with that attitude of viewing everybody as your brother and sister in Christ with the same God the Father, then... From that perspective, wow, it would really be good if you never had to kill someone even in self-defense because they are your brother or sister. The way, I, so of course, I think a lot of people recognize like, oh yeah, that'd be great. It just, that would be so impractical, Bob. We'd all be sitting ducks with bullseyes on our backs. And so I'm going to try to convince you that no, actually that's not the case. That being a pacifist is not as crazy as people think. So let me begin by saying I am going to be targeting this particular talk towards self-described Rothbardians. And the reason I'm narrowing it down to such a specific group is I want to make the following point that when I argue with people over pacifism, it feels just the same to me as when I argue with people about Rothbardianism, in particular when it comes to applying those principles in the areas of military defense and law enforcement, right? So there are a lot of minarchists out there who are all about, oh yeah, get rid of the public schools, go ahead and privatize the roads, totally see how toll pricing would uh, you know, ease congestion, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, we don't need a post office, give me a break. But boy, when it comes to military defense and the police and court system, I just... Are you out of your mind? You want to privatize that stuff too? That wouldn't work. You would, we'd get invaded next Thursday, right? That's how a lot of even minarchists respond. And you realize that they haven't thought it through very hard. They just, because they're so sure that 
privatized police and military defense are just stupid. They haven't bothered to think it through. They just know it's dumb and they reject it and they focus on whatever, restoring the constitution or something. So likewise, I'm saying with pacifism, there are a lot of Rothbardians, a lot of anarcho-capitalists who do not reject the idea of private police or private military defense out of hand. Of course, they thought it through and realized, you know, not only is this not patently stupid, this actually would probably work. And in fact, would even work better than the state system. So, but, but they reject pacifism. And again, my point is, I'm not saying I'm right just because of this observation, but for sure, I am confident in telling you folks that how you kind of roll your eyes and oh, here we go, somebody who really even hasn't thought about this for more than eight minutes when a minarchist hits you if you're an anarcho-capitalist about how clearly you need a government for police and military defense. Likewise, with pacifism, that's how I feel. That, for example, just like when it comes to arguing with minarchists or even more archists, uh, that part of what happens is they just assume if you don't want a coercive state, then that means there are no laws, all right? And so I think some of you might be making that same mistake that you assume if there aren't people with guns willing to shoot somebody over it, then effectively there's no property rights. And I'm, that's not a straw, man. I see that probably every other week on social media where someone will explicitly advance the argument and say, you only have property rights insofar as you, or sometimes they might be more careful and say, or an agent acting on your behalf is willing to use deadly force to protect it from trespassers, something like that. And I want to say, no, the issue of property rights is certainly logically distinct from violent enforcement of those rights. And I would also argue in practice, it can largely be distinct from that. There's lots of stuff that a community could do to quote, punish a criminal short of inflicting bodily pain or injury on the criminal. Okay, so that's, that's one intellectual mistake that a lot of the critics of pacifism make at step one is they assume if you say you're a pacifist, that means you don't believe in property rights and that there wouldn't really be such a thing as a, as a convicted criminal in that kind of community. And I'm saying, no, that's, that's not true at all. There's all sorts of stuff the community could do to bring pressure on someone to give negative incentives for crime short of inflicting bodily harm, all right? So that's just one example of the type of thing I mean when I say the debates often I feel the same way as when I talk to the typical person who thinks pacifism is ludicrous and when I talk to the typical person who thinks privatized police and military are crazy ideas. Okay, so let me run through some of these points I want to make. And I didn't go out of my way to distinguish what I'm going to say in this episode from what I said on the Contra Cruise, but I am not merely parroting my arguments here. So this is a different presentation. So if you were on the Contra Cruise and saw me debate Tom Woods and defeat him soundly, I might add, on this topic, don't think that, oh, I'm just going to repeat stuff you already heard. Some of this is going to be new. And likewise, uh, if you haven't heard that one, then still you should check it out. If you are a special supporting listener of the Bob Murphy show, part of the elite club that has joined the secret Facebook group, then you can see the video there. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to see all the details. Okay. Um, one clarification I'd like to make up front that just helps you to think about this the right way 
is that a pacifist is not a doormat, right? I think people think of pacifists, especially in a Christian tradition, uh, as somebody like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, you know, golly goes, Homer, okay. You know, the real naive gosh and people just take advantage of the person and you don't do anything to stand up for yourself, right? That's, no, that's not, you don't need to be. I mean, yes, someone who acts like that is a pacifist. I don't know if Ned Flanders ever snaps and goes postal on people in the, in the Simpsons. I don't recall that happening, but maybe it did. But so certainly someone who does act like that never protests no matter what somebody does. Okay, yeah, that's pacifism. But my point is you don't have to be like that while being a pacifist. For example, you could be like Desmond Doss. So that Mel Gibson movie, Hacksaw Ridge. If you haven't seen that, check that out. That is an awesome movie. And it's the true story of a, I guess he was a Seventh-day Adventist and was a, a pacifist for religious reasons. He, and he, he had an issue with his brother growing up where he just renounced violence, this guy Desmond Doss. But he wanted to serve in World War II as a medic. And, you know, the army at first just doesn't want to deal with him because he's such a pain. They can't believe, well, you don't want to pick up a rifle? Are you kidding me? And uh, anyway, it's an amazing story. I'll just leave it at that. So say what you will when you're familiar with the case. Say what you will about Desmond Doss. He's not a pushover. He's not a doorman. He's certainly not a coward. Indeed, when other people are mocking you for being a coward and you stick to your principles, if that's really the reason you're refraining from using violence, not because you're afraid of a fight, but because you think, no, I, I really can't good conscience harm another human being. It's against my moral code. While people are mocking you, that's not cowardice. I mean, you can say the person's crazy. You can say it's an awful philosophy if you feel that way, but it's not cowardice if that's what's driving it. Also, there's this idea, I think, that the war planners are very strategic. You know, you got your John Bolton and Dick Cheney sitting around at a conference room looking at maps and pushing pins around and say what you will about those guys, but they're strategic and they really think long-term about stuff and they have agendas and preparation, whereas pacifists are just hippies who want to play the Beatles and eat magic mushrooms and I don't know what, draw paintings of landscapes. And that could be true for many pacifists, but it need not be true. And in fact, nonviolence as a political tactic has been studied. Like this is, this is a very serious thing and certain groups who are trying to effect political change often embrace nonviolence strategically. Like is, a, is it like a, a specific way of being for achieving what their organization wants? To give you an example, I can't remember the name of the guy, but when I was in Nashville, there was a, an exhibit in the library there uh, talking about somebody who would organize training conferences for sit-ins, right? So like in the segregated South during the civil rights movement, this guy would go around and train groups and say, okay, like next Saturday, we're going to all sit in at this lunch counter where we're not supposed to be. And here's how we're going to do it. And they knew if they started throwing punches, then public opinion would turn against them. They would, you know, cause they're breaking the law, the letter of the law. And you know, their point though was that it was a bad law. And so they were trying to sway public opinion to look at the justice of their cause. So they knew that it would be foolish for them to use violence. The, the whole point of what they were doing would be lost if they did that. And then they had techniques, tactics in order 
to make that more palatable. So for example, they would teach, you know, this guy who run the, ran the workshops would teach people saying stuff like, you know, if you're standing in the restaurant there and some angry white guy in this case is beating you up, just sit there and take the punches and then, but try to engage him in conversation. Like say, look, why, why are you punching me? Or just, you know, oh, I, I see um, your wife is standing over there. Does, does she agree with you punching me or whatever? But getting them to stop and like engage you in conversation actually humanizes you. And then it's, it's hard for someone, if you're just sitting there taking it, asking someone fairly reasonable questions like, why are you punching me? then it's hard for someone to maintain this idea, you know, oh, I'm standing up to this social reprobate. Like they kind of have to treat you like a human. And then also they had tactics for like surrounding people on the inside versus the outside so that like the group of the people who were doing the sit-in, the people on the outside ring would take the beating or whatever, getting spit upon for a while, getting, you know, people swearing at them and stuff. And then they would rotate. So the people on the inside then would take their spot and then those people would go in the interior to take a break, right? So that's the kind of stuff that this guy was teaching people in these workshops. So again, say what you will about that, but that's not just hippy-dippy stuff. I mean, that's very strategic and also tactical wisdom, okay? So again, don't think that pacifism or nonviolence, if you want to call it that, just means you don't worry about stuff like that. No, precisely because you understand the situation, you might realize that, ah, yeah, in this situation, picking up a gun is not going to help us. In fact, there's this guy, Gene Sharp. You should check out his work. I think he's been called the Clausewitz of nonviolence, right? Where he writes a lot about military and um, political struggles and about how a population, for example, that's under foreign occupation can use nonviolent means of resistance. And then that also applies to a regime that in Sharp's world, you know, isn't democratic. Okay, so Sharp's not an anarcho-capitalist, but he thinks that there's a government that's not responding to the will of the people, in a sense, that's like a foreign occupation. And also, again, the, the way he thinks to deal with it is not to take up arms against this regime that has tanks, but there's all sorts of other stuff you can do that gets what you want politically without a bunch of your people having to die. So again, you can look at his stuff and quibble with the arguments, say you disagree, but I'm just trying to clear up this notion that, oh yeah, pacifists don't realize there are bad people out there, right? That would be as goofy as saying, oh yeah, you Rothbardians, you live in your own little fantasy world where everybody's rational, but in the real world, there are strong states that are guided by emotion and uh, you know, some strong man's gonna have to do something to appeal to his his population and they, if they have a bloodlust, you know, oh, good, good luck giving your payments to this guy to get him to change his mind, right? That that would be a silly objection. You're a Rothbardian because you're not naive. You're in fact much wiser about how the world works than the average neocon. And yet they're going to accuse you of being naive. So likewise here, somebody who's a pacifist, it doesn't mean he's unaware of the existence of violent people out there. No, he fully well knows there are violent people out there and he sees what happens both when they initiate violence and sees how awful that is, but also when people respond defensively and how that's not all it's cracked up to be either. 
I'm not going to, in this particular episode, dwell too much on what I'm sure for most of you is the big question, the big controversy, as namely, how would a group of pacifists, like living in a city, let's say, a whole city is pacifist, how would that protect itself from being conquered by some foreign army? So I think that's really the big issue. So I would refer you, I gave a pretty long exposition on this stuff in bobmurphyshow.com slash 19. So that was episode 19, the title of which was something like Rothbardian institutions would quickly become nonviolent or something like that. And so there I was saying, not because anybody in the society directly chose pacifism as, a, as an ideological principle or as a moral precept, but just the logic of profit-seeking and the way commercial business operates, anytime a business could solve an issue without using violence, it probably would, especially if we're talking about a culture, a society that's like a modern Western one. All right, so yes, if you had a free society, Rothbardianism broke out among people in current Somalia right now, maybe there's hostilities there and and people really feel the need to show how tough they are. You know, I don't know. I don't live over there. But I'm saying right now, if the federal and state and local governments dissolved and we just had an expansion of respect for the existing body of legitimate property rights and then the gaps were filled in through voluntary peaceful means with private judges rendering opinions and so forth. So if the current United States or the current Germany or current France, what have you, became a free society in the sense of Rothbard's vision, then I think it's pretty obvious, for example, a grocery store, if somebody's shoplifting, they absolutely do not want the security force shooting the person or even breaking his arm. They want to just quickly deal with the shoplifting with as minimum use of violence as possible. And so I think, for example, the, the personnel, the security personnel, wouldn't even carry guns. And I think maybe initially the security teams would have guns, but I think quickly without public schools, without drug prohibition, without the prison system that encourages recidivism, minimum wage laws, you know, all the ways that the state right now makes our society more violent, you take all that away. I think over time, the society would become pretty peaceful such that there really wouldn't be a need for the you know security staff working at your grocery store watching for shoplifting there'd be no reason for them to have guns because in a wealthy society nobody's going to be stealing stuff from the grocery store anyway all right so i think you could sort of see the logic of that and even bank robbers and whatever i think over time it would just be easier to have safety you know, bulletproof glass and whatever, like maybe where you press a button, the bank locks down so it's hard to get out. And then if the people do escape, you track them through other means. I mean, notice that recent horrible case of the police that uh, chased those, what were they, uh, people who robbed a jewelry store, I think, in that UPS truck and all that stuff. I mean, clearly that's nutty. And so I'm just taking it one step further and saying, I don't think the what we would call the police, but they would be security provided by competing companies that had certain clients, you know, businesses and whatever that were in their area of response, I don't, I don't think they would show up with guns. 
because I think they would want potential criminals to know they were not going to be brought in violently. And so the criminals wouldn't have a need to have a gun. Now you could say, oh, but they would have a gun so they have an advantage. Well, right. And then the police would have body armor and other ways of containing the situation. All right. So that that's what I think would happen. Again, not because anybody has an epiphany and says Gandhi was right, but just through competition. If one firm said to potential businesses, we can provide security for your organization. And look, at we have a track record where we've never killed any suspect. There was one time back three years ago where a guy's arm broke when we were tackling him. But, uh, you know, we studied the incident. We provided better training. We don't think that'll happen again. You know, if that's what they're pitching, you can see how it would quickly become very nonviolent. Maybe they would carry guns. Maybe not. You know, maybe they have the guns in the car or something. All right. And so I'm saying also on that account, I think it would work. All right. Now, I understand people would say, oh, well, it'd be easier just to defend ourselves with violence, but at least just hear me out here. I'm saying it would not be suicide. It would not be patently absurd for them to also renounce the use of violence, even when it comes to repelling a military invasion. And you have to realize how rich a society would be that was actually pacifist because there's no coercive state if everybody's pacifist. And so if even given just what, 10 years to operate, imagine how amazingly productive and wealthy such a society would be. I think it would easily triple its standard of living. It's, you know, per capita output and so forth. So in that context, then the outside troops are coming in and what can they do? Well, they could have, for example, just deploy the, the defenders of the city, the pacifist city, let's say, they could just deploy tiny little drones the size of houseflies that go out and they just insert something into the necks of the invading troops. You know, so if there's infantry, you know, it's easy to hit them. And then even if they're in tanks or whatever, these drones know how to get inside those things. All right. Or if they can't get inside the tanks, then maybe there's like there's charges in the manhole covers that come up on the treads as the tanks are rolling in and then, you know, takes them out. So it doesn't actually blow up the tank, but it, it renders it so that it can't advance very well. I think there's lots of stuff like that. And that you say, oh, why do we got to do that? But I'm saying it's technologically possible. It would be possible for an advanced city. You know, imagine how wealthy this thing would be. They'd have amazing supercomputers. Some of the most productive people in the world would move there once they saw what a mecca this place was for somebody like them. They could easily have that technology. And because of that, it would make it difficult for more advanced governments to justify dropping a hydrogen bomb on them. All right. So that's the kind of analysis I would like you to engage in. And I'll link to a more extensive analysis I've given on some of this stuff at bobmurphyshow.com slash 94 to see my views just on military defense more broadly construed. Not so not pacifism per se, but just my views on privateer military defense just to help you see the way I'm looking at this as an economist. All right. So again, here, I'm not so much trying to convince you from scratch. If you didn't have any prior one way or the other, I'm not trying to convince you that, oh yes, you can see how renouncing the use of violence is a good thing because 
I could see you saying, well, you know, maybe there's still a small portion of the time where I'd want to use violence, right? So it's kind of hard for me to prove if I'm starting from scratch, the optimal policy is to never use it. But what I am trying to do here is show you if you were inclined to support that because, oh yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful, beautiful moral principle. It's just, it's so impractical. You, you know, that's a suicide mission. Then I'm, that's what I'm trying to knock down here. I'm trying to show you that, no, it's actually not as dumb as you think it is. And so, like I said, if you want to hear more along those lines, then go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 19. Hey, boys and girls, you're invited to the Contra Cruise 2020 from October 17th to 24th, departing from sunny Miami. The Contra Cruise, of course, is always enjoyable, kids, but you don't want to miss this year because of the roast of Dave Smith. Now, believe it or not, folks, Tom Woods is actually not half bad. But Bob is the master of the roast. He is, he's tremendous, and it would have been wonderful to, to have him here, but he had to stay home practicing the pronunciation of the word nuclear. Good one, Tom. Why couldn't you be more like that on social media? Now let's see if Bob had anything up his sleeve when it came to Tom. All I'm saying, look, 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 folks, folks, folks. All I'm saying is, Tom, Tom, all I'm saying is that when you were in high school, if a kid on the football team said you were part of the loser brigade, that's just weird. That's all I'm saying. Just saying it's weird. Tom, what those kids did to you back then, it, it, it was wrong. It was wrong. But you need to let it go. Let it go. Ooh, good one, Bob. Of course, the big standoff last time was when Bob went head-to-head with Dave Smith. Get him, Bob. Hey, did you guys, I mean... Dave's show is really good, right? Part of the problem when you guys listen to it. Yeah, yeah, of course you do. Of course you do. Great show, great show. Did you guys know that um, Dave actually has a sidekick, a co-host, if you will? Yeah, yeah, a lot of people don't know that. <laughs> Robbie the Fire, he's like a, a sidekick who doesn't get to talk very much. He, he's the Tonto of podcasting, folks. Really cool character. You get to hear three words per episode. <laughs> Ouch. I hope Dave has some thick skin. But Dave wasn't done yet. He swung back and swung back hard. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are like, oh, maybe that's just because he's lazy. No. No. Bob Murphy is such a good Misesian that he understands that even sitting on his fat ass is, in fact, action. Yikes. Better luck next time, Dave. Also, we'll be joined by special guest Ludwig von Mises, who will also participate in the roast. Listen to the podcast. But seeking to answer the question, why is Dave Smith so bad you know? In what consists the poverty of his podcast? So remember, kids, it's the Contra Cruise 2020 from October 17th through 24th, departing from Miami on Royal Caribbean. For more details, go to ContraCruise.com. So I I think I've shown you the sense in which if you had a whole society, a whole city, at least, you know, a major metropolis that was pacifist, how those people could actually not collapse due to bank robbers and shoplifters and rapists and so forth, that you could have law enforcement. It's just the police don't physically hurt you when they stop you from going onto a piece of property, for example. 
right? So again, just keep that in mind. I'm the analogy goes back to what I'm saying when I'm arguing just standard anarcho-capitalism with people. They hear, oh, you don't believe in coercive state police forces, and they think that means, oh, there's no law enforcement then. And if you're just a standard Rothbardian, you say, no, of course there's law enforcement. So likewise here, you hear that Bob Murphy's a pacifist, so you assume there's no law enforcement. And I'm saying, that's not what my position entails. I'm saying there's no violent law enforcement. Maybe I should clarify there's a distinction between violence and aggression in the libertarian sense. So you could be acting violently, but not initiating aggression. And so actually not engaging in aggression the way some libertarians use the term, right? So um, two guys who are in a heavyweight boxing match or, you know, UFC fighters, they're clearly engaging in violent behavior. They're committing acts of violence against each other, but it's voluntary. So long as, you know, nobody's, violating the rules, you know, pulling a knife out or something, then it was all voluntary. They agreed to it ahead of time. And so it's not aggression in terms of the non-aggression principle. Nobody violated anybody's property rights, even though they engaged in violence. And likewise, or on the flip side, you can also have aggression in the libertarian sense without using violence. So if somebody breaks in them, my house, you know, the, let's say the front door is open. So just opens, walks in, goes and takes my wallet and walks out. In the libertarian framework, that person initiated aggression, but certainly violence wasn't involved. All right. So what I'm saying is pacifism, the way I use the term, means you're not using violence against people. But that doesn't mean you can't use force. So there's, there's another distinction I'll bring up. In some pacifists might think that I'm being a sellout and that that's not pure full pacifism and that, you know, that's fine. You know, that, so it's true. There are some pacifists who, if somebody came in and was setting their house on fire in front of their eyes, they would just say, you know, I, I really wonder why you're doing that. And I would ask you to stop doing that, but they would let them do it. Whereas I, I wouldn't watch someone set my house on fire. Like I would try to push the guy off my property or something. But point is I would not go get a butcher knife and, stab in the heart with it to get him to stop setting my house on fire. All right. Um, another thing that people bring up for whatever reason is they ask me, you know, they'll come up with some scenario where it always involves my family. All right. And what I did on the cruise, and I, I'll repeat that line here just because it's so relevant, I think, is I said to Tom, okay, Tom, so let's say um, someone says to you, hey, uh, Tom, unless you go across the street there into that grocery store and steal a candy bar, we're going to kill your family. Are you going to do it? And then Tom says, of course I would do that. And then I said, oh, so you must not really be a libertarian then, Tom. You don't actually believe in the non-aggression principle because I've just shown a scenario under which you would abandon it. And so, you know, what do you guys think of that? Did I just prove Tom's not a libertarian? I don't think so. And so I was saying, likewise, I hold a very dear value in my life that I would not harm somebody else. Now, if there was a scenario where it really seemed like I had to choose between hurting somebody or letting them do something bad to my kid, it is true that I probably am not going to be able to stand there and watch something happen to my kid. I'm going to do something to stop that. Now, does that mean... I'm not really a pacifist after all. And again, I, 
I don't think so. Now, there, there is a slight difference because most people agree, yeah, I wouldn't use violence unless I needed to to defend something really near and dear to my heart. And so they're going to say, okay, Bob, so that's why, you know, if you're going to call yourself a pacifist, even though ultimately you would do what you had to do to stop someone from hurting like your kid, then that's kind of goofy because then everybody's a pacifist. Whereas with Tom, you know, there's lots of people who wouldn't even be libertarian, even for something like, well, because otherwise my food stamps would be interrupted, right? So like the, the threat that would make them be willing to initiate aggression to violate the NAP is much lower than it is for the case of Tom or the threshold, I should say, is much lower for them than it is for Tom. And so that's why somebody could reasonably argue just because Tom would violate the NAP if his kid's life were at stake, he can still call himself a libertarian and that's not weird. But with you, Bob, the fact that you're saying, yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't be a pacifist if my kid were right, you know, something bad was gonna happen right in front of my face. So therefore I'm not a pacifist um, because that's the way people use those terms. I don't think, I don't agree with that, right? I, I can see where you're coming from if you're saying that, but my threshold is pretty high, okay? So like if somebody came up and were punching me, I would not want to physically incapacitate the person punching them back, all right? I would like want to protect myself, whatever, okay? So when I, you know, if you're, if you're constructing it to say what would it be, it, it would have to be something like, yeah, hurting my kid, all right? So that's the sense in which I mean it. But what I want to end with here is, well, let me, let me make another point. On social media, I think you can also see the benefits of pacifism. And so what I mean here is there's a sense in which people have armies they're building, right? I mean, obviously it has to do with your followers, but also some of the people, some of the followers are more... Uh, I don't want to say weaponized, but like organized for mass action, right? Some people who have large followers on Twitter, they've developed ways of mobilizing them. So like if the person retweets something, he knows 500 of his followers are going to go harass the person. And, and maybe he thinks for a good cause, right? That's the thing that, you know, if some, if some leftist, I'll just assume I know who I'm talking to here with my audience. If some leftist, goes and attacks a, a person on the right, then the people on the right are going to defend themselves by sending their followers. And then if the leftist blocks them, the people on the right are going to conclude, ah, what a coward. You know, you backed off your crazy insult. Whereas the person on the left, from their perspective, what happened was these angry right-wing trolls just launched their attack dogs on me. And then, you know, the mirror image happens too, where somebody makes a somebody at a restaurant makes a, a naughty joke. Some restaurant customer is offended and takes a picture. Like, uh, I, I just heard this story. I think Bill Burr, the comedian actually told it in one of his stand-up routines that, um, you know, a waitress put a, put a joke on a chalkboard and then some patron was offended by it. And she took a picture of it and posted it to social media and got a bunch of her people to harass the restaurant chain. And so then that manager and that waitress got fired from the, you know, this is the chain restaurant, stuff like that. So my point is when libertarians see something like that, usually they get upset, but they wouldn't worry about, you know, if, if they're being sent off to go attack somebody. 
So what's my point with all this is that I'm pretty non-confrontational on Twitter and partly it's a reflection of my personality, but it's also strategic that I don't want to go after people because if somebody ever comes at me, I want it to be crystal clear who the aggressor is, right? So people would have to know if I get into a flame war with something, someone on Twitter, you're going to see the exchanges and it's going to be largely self-deprecating coming from me, right? It's going to be whimsical. It's going to be clear. I'm trying to crack jokes to get everyone to calm down. And again, partly that's just my personality, but also I realize that serves a valuable function with me floating around the Twitter ecosystem with all the other egos floating around, some of whom have accumulated large armies, large standing armies that they're ready to deploy. Point being, if somebody attacks me with their army, I want everybody else to know hands down with no doubt, oh yeah, that guy invaded Bob's territory aggressively. And how do they know that just because of the way I've conducted myself over the last five years? They're going to know if somebody gets into a war with Bob on Twitter, Bob was probably not the one at fault, you know, being the aggressor. All right. So, you know, that, that logic, it works at all the different levels is what I'm getting at. And so let me, uh, <laughs> I debated whether or not to say this, but what the heck, I'll go ahead and say it. I'll be like, uh, Ricky Gervais, you know, if, if you guys think this is goofy and want to make fun of me, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Um, I'm also not worried about like just a mugger or something shooting me because number one, um, an actual mugger who's like, that's his job or that's something he does part-time as a, as a regular means of raising revenue, that person's never going to mug me, that type of person. All right. I've uh, read Gavin DeBecker's book, The Gift of Fear. And in there, he talks about it and they interview professional pickpocket artists and things and, and, and actual muggers, you know, people who don't just pickpocket, but people who will grab somebody and pull them into an alley or something. And what do they say? They say, like, how do you, how do you pick your victims? And I said, oh, well, you know, we'll look at a guy. So if I'm walking, if, if somebody sees me coming and he crosses the street, then I know he's afraid of me, that kind of thing. He said, but if I'm walking towards someone and he's looking me up and down, like assessing if he could take me in a fight, well, then I'm not going to bother with that guy. All right. It's, it's not whether the mugger thought he could take the guy in a fight. The issue was if the guy's going to resist, I don't want to deal with that. All right. I'll just go find someone that I know is going to be cowering and just hand over the wallet. My roommate, when I was at NYU, got mugged the first year. And I was fascinated. I mean, he, he wasn't hurt. This some he he was like on a subway platform or something, and some guys just kind of grabbed him and pulled him around the corner, like where there was a stairwell or something, so people couldn't see, and just made him hand over his wallet or something like that. And you know, so I was asking him questions about it, like, "What were you doing?" And the thing is, he was just off in his own world. He had headphones on, and he was thinking about math problems or something when they grabbed him. So he really couldn't tell me much about this the scenario leading up to it because he was totally unaware and that's that's the point that's one of the things that you know gavin DeBecker and others would tell you in a situation like that all right so i'm not worried about a regular old mugger now you could say all right well aren't you worried about the deep state you know you keep speaking out and whatever okay yeah well if the cia is going to kidnap me whether or not i have a gun or mace or something that's not going to matter right <laughs> so being a pacifist there and in fact being a pacifist helps right? Because FBI guys listening to this conversation or you 
folks in the CIA, you know, when you send a van to grab me, I'm not going to violently resist. And so there's no reason to uh, use flashbang grenades when you storm my place. Okay, so there's that element. Again, thinking on the margin. And more generally, again, I'm going to say this. I don't care. You want to make fun of me? Go ahead. I don't care. But the people who grew up with me know this is true. When I need to, my mind does calculations very fast, and I'm pretty athletic. So, for example, for those of you who know the game beer pong, you know what that is? You set up 10 plastic cups, set up like they're bowling pins on opposite sides of a ping pong table, and then you, you know, you take the ping pong ball, you, you fill them with, this is like a fraternity game party. I wasn't in a frat, but I've been to some of these types of parties. And you, you put a little bit of beer in each of the cups, and there's two teams on each side of the ping pong table. And so you, you know, you bounce the ping pong on your, or I forget, you, you bounce it once and then it goes into the, into the other cups. All right. And uh, this one night I was, I hit 13 in a row, right? So all 10, we won that game. Then they restacked them. We, you know, played whoever the next people were. And I was the first three for three. And then I, then I missed. All right. So <laughs> I'm just saying, in a situation where it's just a regular guy trying to steal my wallet or something, or if I'm in a bank and there's a robbery where I'm not saying I'm Superman, I'm not saying I'm invulnerable, but I'm saying I have known in various situations when it's actually important that I, I explain what's going on. I think what happens is that I do a lot of calculations really fast and st stuff looks slow motion to me when it's a real serious situation. And so I'm just, you know, I, I actually think that I'm going to be able to get through most of the situations that you're saying, oh, wow, you really ought to be carrying a gun on that. Eh, I don't think so. And again, I don't care. Go ahead. Say I'm crazy. I'm glad actually if you do, because that's why the stuff I would do in a situation like that, the average criminal wouldn't be expecting it. Right. So um, it's fine with me if a bunch of people hearing that say, oh, this is, this is goofy. <laughs> Listen to this guy. Right, good. And so when I do the kind of stuff that I've been thinking about to get out of a situation without actually hurting anybody, then they're going to be shocked because people just don't even bother thinking it through. They just assume, no, nah, you got to carry a gun around because otherwise something bad could happen. Instead of saying, all right, well, let's be more specific and let's think on the margin. Hey, folks, let's take a break for me to give you a pitch for why we should move to three episodes per week. That's right, folks. I think you guys want me expanding to giving you three episodes per week. One that's an interview, one that's a sort of deep dive into a topic like pacifism, and then another one that's more topical, more news of the day. Things like, gee, if the Inspector General report comes out and it says that one of the FBI agents inserted the words not a source into an email, perhaps that's a bit more than just an honest mistake, right? Those types of things. I think you guys need me on all those different beats, but the only way that can happen is if we get more recurring contributions to justify me being able to devote that extra time to it. So I appreciate the support we've gotten so far, but you guys would be surprised at how expensive it is to put out a high quality podcast. And so to go to three episodes per week, what I'm going to need is 300 people to step forward and to give a donation, a recurring monthly donation of $12 per month. That works out to roughly $1 per episode that you're contributing. And if 300 of you step forward and sign up for that, then I can justifiably say, okay, 
devote more of my time to staying on top of certain current events, doing deep dives, things like, uh, I don't know, it's kind of weird that all those witnesses against Kevin Spacey recently died, right? Well, I don't have time right now to go out and report on that to you guys. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's coincidence. Maybe it's something crazy. Who knows? I don't know. I don't have time to look it up. Do you? So you want me doing stuff like that? You want me going to three episodes per week? A dollar an episode. Come on. Can't beat that with a stick. To see how you can sign up, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. And again, if I get up to the point at which at least 300 of you have stepped forward for that $12 monthly donation that recurs, then I can go to three episodes per week. I think you're going to like it. So now when it comes to being a Christian, there are lots of things that Jesus says that prima facie imply pacifism, right? I mean, probably the most famous is to turn the other cheek when someone strikes you, but all sorts of, you know, just loving your enemy, all right? And so I think the reason a lot of Christians who hear the Sermon on the Mount, who hear the other things that Jesus said, I think the reason they just quickly go to, no, when he said that, he didn't mean to actually never use violence against a bad guy because I think a a large part of what's driving that is that they say he couldn't possibly have meant what you're saying, Bob, because that's crazy. If anytime someone struck you, you turn the other cheek, well then, I mean, crime would run run rampant. You know, how, how could we possibly survive if just 10% of the population could run roughshod over the rest of us because we're turning the other cheek all the time? And so I've, I've just shown you that, no, that actually wouldn't happen, okay? So again, if if you have strong Christian views and you really don't think that Jesus meant that we were supposed to be pacifists, that, that's fine. I'm, I'm not trying to argue with you here in this episode. I'm just saying, why don't you reevaluate your reasons for thinking that when he says some of those passages, he doesn't mean it literally, and how much of that is being driven by the fact that you just are assuming, well, he couldn't mean that literally, because if he did, then that means my life would be so horrible. You know, that, that would be such a burden, such a cross to bear, if I had to live that way, and, and I'm saying, no, it actually, it wouldn't be that bad. For sure, Jesus's own life, he was a pacifist, right? I mean, he didn't even kick Judas out of his organization when he knew Judas was plotting to kill him. Now, obviously, this is a huge, huge, huge topic. There's lots of stuff going on there. And I'm not offering that as a slam dunk case, right? You could also say Jesus didn't get married because he was so devoted to his father's plan. And, you know, so does that mean it's wrong to get married because Jesus get married? Obviously, that's not what I think. All right. So I'm, I, I recognize what the counter response on these points could be. But just again, let me just say this that I think Jesus answered the ultimate question. He's saying, you got to trust me, do, you know, what the father's will is, even if it's hard. And somebody could say, but, but Jesus, if I did that, then bad people might, might do something to me. It's, yeah. I mean, they might kill me. And Jesus showed that, yeah, that can happen. And then, but look what comes out of it. All right. So in his case, yep, the bad guys killed Jesus. Well, end of story, right? No, because he came back from the dead. All right. And now I'm not saying for everything like that, there's an equally astonishing, miraculous response. But for things that are less of a transgression, right? Because there, what happened? Humans murdered the son of God who came down and was doing nothing 
but going around healing them and teaching them amazing wisdom and showing them how to fix themselves, just doing nothing but helping them. And they murdered him. And they, and they did, it wasn't like they put a pillow over his head either. It was a disgusting torture murder with mocking involved. I mean, you know, it wasn't even like respectful, like, wow, you know, you're a formidable person, Mr. Jesus. And, uh, we got to do this to you. But I want to shake your hand though. I respect those sermons you gave. And, um, but you, but you see how we have to No, they were mocking him while they did it to him. Just absolutely reprehensible. The worst thing that humanity has ever done. And then what did that evoke as a response from God? He used it to save humanity by having Jesus come back from the dead and conquer death itself. Okay, so I'm saying in your life, you're realizing, Bob, if I try to live more nonviolently, right? let me just not say passive, let's just not make it some absolute thing. Because again, I'm not perfect either. I'm not saying push comes to shove, I'm not going to use violence in a real tight situation. Again, especially if my kid's at stake or something. But I'm just holding it up there as a goal. And if you say, oh, but Bob, geez, you know, I can imagine all kinds of scenarios where something very inconvenient would happen to me or even really awful. And I want to say, but also keep in mind what God does in situations where he turns evil to good. And so let me end with this analogy. I once saw a video where a guy, he was a traffic designer. I think he was in some Nordic country, but I might be getting that off. And he designed this roundabout in a certain way. And, and this guy's philosophy was, he said, you as a road designer, if you have to use lights or signs, you failed, right? That the design of the road should be such that the drivers automatically do what you need them to do so there's no accidents and that the traffic flows smoothly. And so he's talking to the reporter and he comes up to this roundabout that he had designed. It's busy. There's cars coming and going. And the designer turns around and says, look, I trust the design of my roundabout so much that I'm going to walk backwards into the traffic. And he does. He just walks backwards and the car is coming. So if you're wondering what happens, and by the way, I make a good joke at Mises U when I use that part. And I say, he's dead now. But I think the important thing is, and everybody laughs. So he survives. The cars just go around him. And, and so what's happening is the logic there is that when you're approaching a roundabout, you slow down. That's your first instinct because you don't know what the heck is going on. You're disoriented. And that's he wants you to be disoriented. He's saying what causes traffic accidents is when the driver's zoning out. When the driver, you know, they're listening to their radio or something, or they're just kind of looking at the sky because everything is so automatic and they just assume, well, no, because I have the green light, that means I'm fine. I can go through this intersection and they're not paying attention. All right. So the people approaching this roundabout that he walked backwards into because they were a little disoriented with there's no signage or anything, they're alert. They weren't yelling at their kid in the back seat. They knew they had to pay attention. And so that's why nobody hit them. All right. And so maybe one way for me to get across things that I've been seeing as I get older is I think people, because they get callous and hurt and they accumulate all of this outer shell from people screwing them over and lying and being self-serving and just 
the world is much worse and more corrupt than you realize when you were a little kid. And wow, people really suck. And you just accumulate that and you're paranoid and you're just like looking six moves ahead to make sure no one's stopped the screen. Unfortunately, when you're going through life like that, then you're not emanating the love of God. And if you could instead turn yourself into being a, a channel or a conduit or, or a mirror reflecting God's brilliance, that might just transform the environment around you. And so what I'm saying about being a pacifist, that's why I think there is an important qualitative leap besides just saying, oh yeah, I mean, I, I carry a gun, but I, I, trust me, Bob, you know, I, I really wouldn't use it unless, you know, somebody's really crossing the line. I wouldn't just do it to tell someone to get off my line. I mean, I believe you and I'm not saying you're a bad person, but I'm just saying still, if you're walking around every day thinking there's a good chance, well, not a good chance, but there's entirely a possibility that I might shoot somebody today, the relevant lawbreaker of sufficient magnitude. I mean, that's, I think you're, you're not allowing yourself to really just let go and be like that guy turning around and walking backwards into the traffic. So I'm saying being a pacifist from a Christian perspective is it's as if, you know, you, you've gotten a message from the creator of human beings and said, I designed them in a certain way that I'm telling you, if you just emanate love, even against your enemies, if you love your enemies, I know it sounds crazy, but trust me, I designed people. I know how they work better than you do. I know how you work better than you do. And trust me, if you're walking around judging people and getting ready to deploy violence against them, don't be surprised that you're always miserable and suicidal, right? You just apply those same things to yourself. Trust me, turn around, walk backwards, trust the design. Everything will turn out fine because the omnipotent, omniscient creator of the universe loves you more than you can possibly imagine and has a plan for all of us. And I personally, when I read the Sermon on the Mount, I think we are really supposed to try to not use violence against other people. And so I've just personally adopted that in my life, just like I try not to lie, right? And I really take that seriously. I'm not saying I never lie, but I really try not to. And that's the sense in which I'm calling myself a pacifist. So if you want to say, ah, that's not real pacifism, okay, fine. Make up some term for what I am because it's not merely that I don't initiate aggression. It's something more than just that on the spectrum of the acceptable uses of violence. And so if you're a Christian and particularly an anarcho-capitalist Christian, I would invite you to ponder those issues more deeply. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.